the Anesthesia Podcast. Hello from Anesthesia Journal. My name is Susanna Patey and I'm an Associate Editor of the Journal. Today, um, Dr Hansel and colleagues have published a new paper looking at clinical tests for confirming tracheal intubation or excluding esophageal intubation. Um, this is a really important and very um, relevant topic because there's much, a lot of debate after the publication of the recent PUMA guideline regarding the utility of clinical tests for um, esophageal intubation. Um, I think as anaesthetists, we can all say that we've all intubated an esophagus, but for the vast majority of us, we recognised it and we took the tube out promptly and no harm happened to the patient. However, sadly, unrecognised esophageal intubation is still happening and it has very, very serious consequences for patients. I think one argument when I bring this up with colleagues is that it's such a rare event, unrecognised esophageal intubation, um, and therefore, because it's a rare event, we don't have a lot of evidence for, for what we do. And I think this study really does show that we do have a decent evidence base to work with. And um, I'd like to introduce both um, Dr. Jan Hansel and Dr. Tim Cook, who are both authors, who are going to talk to us a little bit about the paper today. So first of all, um, Tim and Jan, why did you undertake the study and, and how did you do it? Um. I'll take that. And hi, Susanna. Thanks very much for asking uh, both of us to take part in this um, podcast. Um, but is it a podcast? Is a Twitter, um, whichever, video interview. Um, so I think you've laid a lot of it out um, quite correctly. Um, when we undertook the... So, so I became involved in the guidelines that were, were predominantly written by the Puma Group, um, uh, in the wake of uh, my knowledge of a series of um, cases of fatalities or serious harm from um, undetected or unrecognised soft intubation. And um, in the wake of um, uh, Glenda Logsdale's um, death and the coroner's report, I felt that we needed to act. And um, to cut a long story short, I then joined uh, for this project, the Puma Group, uh, to write some guidelines, which have subsequently become essentially international consensus guidelines. And as part of that, um, one of the Puma team, um, uh, Adam Law, uh, did an analysis of clinical examination uh, to determine its value um, uh, in excluding a soft intubation, not detecting tracheal intubation, but excluding a soft intubation. And that was included, effectively, the results of that were included um, sort of in passing, um, or the consequences of it were included in the in the review, in as much as we said that the value of um, clinical signs for excluding soft intubation were inadequately sensitive or specific, and therefore that they shouldn't be used to exclude soft intubation. Now we knew this was going to be controversial. We knew it was going to cause a bit of furore, and um, it certainly has done both um, in. Uh, contact with us, discussion meetings, and um, and on social media. And so we thought that we should probably um, uh, formalise that analysis that had been done by Adam Law. So we then brought in um, Jan uh, for his um, specific systematic review expertise, having done excellent systematic review on video laryngoscopy and direct laryngoscopy. And uh, so with Jan's expertise, essentially Adam and uh, Jan did the... Um, the legwork, um, the technical analysis, and then um, uh, Nick Crimes, uh, Andy Higgs, and myself um, supported that and put the put the work together. So that's where we are. So it's trying to give 
as you say, a bit a bit more robust science uh, to the guideline where we say uh, a clinical examination not good enough. Okay. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the methodology. You sort of started to hint at it a little bit there. Um, and why why did you pick sort of the statistical methods that you did? So just, just briefly on, on the basic methodology. So this is a diagnostic test accuracy, systematic review and meta-analysis. And, uh, and there are guidelines in place on, on how to conduct these uh, and how to make comparisons. We did not undertake a network meta-analysis, which would compare each and every test to one another and give us sort of a ranking review. Uh, but we just chose to chose to sort of assess each test um, uh, in itself uh, as compared to the gold standard, which mostly was uh, waveform capnography. Uh, so this was this was sort of underpinning it. Uh, then we then we had to choose which statistics to present. Um, the first one that, that seemed most obvious was the false positive rate, which is a very simple and robust statistic that gives us an indication of how often um, a test will, will be um, falsely reassuring. And, and in the context of uh, undetected esophageal intubation, this is probably the, the one we're most interested in. Uh, the second one would be uh, likelihood ratio, and maybe maybe Tim can, can give us a bit more on, on this. Yeah, so... Um... The positive predictive value and the negative predictive value um, are tests that are that are that are often um, used when people are talking about um, the value of tests, um, but but they're not very useful for rare events. Um, so, because most of the time we put the tube in the right place. Um, uh, if you were to toss a coin as, uh, and and say whenever it came up heads, that was indicative that you were in the right place, then you're when you picked a head, um, you'd be right most of the time because we're right 99, 99 or more percent of the time. So um, that as a predictive test would have a high positive predictive value, but it wouldn't be a useful test for whether the tube's in the right place. Mm. Um, we know that capnography is a reliable test um, and there are some other tests uh, reliable, which we might talk about, but we particularly wanted to talk about um, the clinical tests. So the clinical tests, um, uh, I shall, maybe Jan will come back to the clinical tests, but, but the positive predictive value, which, as I say, a lot of people rely on and the negative predictive value, they are dependent on the frequency of the event that you're looking at. So we wanted to use um, uh, tests which were less uh, reliant on that. And therefore, the, as Jan says, the false negative rate, the frequency with which we are fooled into thinking that the tube is in the right place, is a useful one. And then the second um, uh, statistical representation we used was what's called likelihood ratios. And the likelihood ratios are not dependent on the frequency of the event. So they, they indicate the relative odds of a test occurring in patients with and without the condition being tested for, so what we've written in the paper. So a positive likelihood ratio describes the relative odds that a positive test is correct. So for the test we're Looking at to confirm tracheal intubation, the positive likelihood ratio is the odds of the test that the test correctly indicates the tubes in the trachea relative to the odds that the test erroneously indicates the tubes in the trachea when in fact it's in the esophagus. So we we want a test that has um, for detecting tracheal intubation or for detecting 
in effectively the converse is uh, excluding esophageal intubation. We want to test with a very high positive likelihood ratio. And then there's also a negative ratio. Um, so uh, the negative ratio, negative likelihood ratio, is the odds that a negative test is incorrect. So that is um, uh, when the test indicates esophageal intubation, the odds of the test indicates esophageal intubation when the tube's in the trachea, um, relative to the odds that the test indicates the tube's in the esophagus when it is in the esophagus. And we want that to be very low. So we want, a, we want uh, tests to be discriminating by having a very high positive um, likelihood ratio, something well above 10, yeah. probably in the 20s and 30s, and a very low negative likelihood ratio, significantly below, um, below 0.1, so that, so that, so that they're, they're incorrect only a tenth of the time. I think also when you when you actually when you look at the data analysis you've done and you look at how you how you framed it, the numbers are alarming. I mean, when you're talking about tube misting, um, I think it's something like an eighty percent false positive rate. Please correct me if that's not right. But those numbers, to me clinically, are very alarming. It's really nice to hear you explain them because when you read it, it's quite sobering reading. The things that we we immediately look for when we've intubated a patient, yeah, essentially is, saying are not are not accurate. They are not good measures. Yeah, I, so I mean, yeah, yeah, I might want to talk to the results a bit more than me, but one thing I would emphasise is I think this paper is worth reading because it's a it's a statistical paper. We set out to to present the statistics about the reliability of these tests, but it is framed very much as a clinical paper. So we have made considerable effort, and I'm very pleased that Alice has given us the latitude uh, to describe the tests that we're doing. So often, if you if you write a paper which is based on statistical sort of analysis, then there's an assumption that everybody who's reading it understands those statistics. But Alice has been very kind in giving us latitude to try and lay out what those statistics mean, which makes it, it hopefully approachable and clinically relevant for people who are not um, as statistically expert as 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 as, as Jan and, um, and and Adam in doing the analysis. Yeah, and I think I think that shows because I think it personally I think it's a quite a, quite a reasonable read and that you actually understand your thought processes under underneath that and this particular emphasis that again like as I said at the beginning it's just, it's a rare event and how do you get decent stats and decent and ev decent evidence base on something that's a rare event. And I think you've, you've addressed that really well in the paper and that and that comes across and comes across well. So just talking about something sort of a bit sort of, and we talked a lot about stats, but we're going to go a little bit more clinically now. Um, so you mentioned a lot about sort of esophageal detector devices. Now this is not something that I commonly use in practice and I think many of my colleagues don't. Um, and this, this of all the other methods, apart from capnography, has a relatively low false positive rate. Um, and it's also been, it's also in the Puma guidelines as well. So could you just talk to us clinically about what they are, what they do, and, and do you think we should, we should be using them? We should they be on our like difficult airway trolleys if they're not in every anesthetic room? So if, if, if I can take this one maybe to begin with, um, maybe just a quick description of what the esophageal detector device actually is for, for anybody who might not have used it. I've not used it myself in clinical practice. I'm not sure if, if uh, any of us joined in this video call have, uh, but that does not mean that, that it isn't used somewhere in the world. And by including it, we wanted to 
you know, sort of avoid selection bias that might come about of from from sort of assuming that our practice is reflective of practice anywhere else in the world where where resources might not allow uh, for waveform cryptography at the moment. Now, no, this is a crucial point. Going back to the esophageal detector device, a very simple way of imagining it is almost like a turkey baster. So it has a it has a bulb. Uh, and that bulb is collapsible, and you attach it to the tube once you've intubated either the trachea or the esophagus. So you can attach it with the bulb collapsed, or you can attach it as it is, and then sort of press it down to collapse it, and that will insufflate air into either the uh, esophagus or the uh, or the trachea. Uh, if it if it happens to be in the esophagus, what happens is that the air will go in, and then the esophageal um, muscles will just collapse afterwards. So the bulb will not reinflate, if that makes sense. Uh, whereas if you inflate into the trachea, obviously air will, uh, uh, exhaled air will, will flow back uh, and that will reinflate uh, the bulb. Uh, and the, the performance characteristics of, of this test are, are decent enough to have warranted inclusion into, into the Puma guideline. Um, so, so, so that's sort of where we are with the esophageal detector device. Whether it warrants inclusion in, in, in the sense of you know, promoting its use, that's an entirely different question. We need to just be cognizant of the fact that these were mostly historic studies. So we're talking about studies that were mostly done in the 90s uh, before the advent of widespread waveform cartography. Waveform cartography was sort of coming, in, coming into, into more widespread practice at that point. And by the by the early noughties, uh, these studies have sort of sort of uh, tapered off, um, and this is probably to do with just more and more widespread adoption. All of that being said, uh, a recent Twitter poll was done on you know have you ever used an esophageal detector device? We have no ways of knowing who actually responded or how valid that is, but a but a proportion of of respondents did say that yes they have used it and and or they have seen it in clinical practice so this might indicate that, that there might be a degree of bias by by not considering it at all so we we might have to have to keep it in consideration for the time being whilst sort of scaling up uh, universal for lack of a better word waveform cryptography yeah i think i think that's interesting i think actually the only time i have used one was a very very long time ago and in a cardiac arrest bag there was one there but now generally um waveform capnography is, is much much more available in hospitals in in remote sites in hospitals yeah, i think it's so important to emphasize that we're not we're not promoting use of esophageal mm -hmm. devices and we're absolutely um uh it, it's fundamental the starting point is that capnography is better than all yeah. these tests and yeah. the, the, the 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 diagnostic test you need to use to determine whether your tube is in the right place is capnography almost end of, but the the fact of the matter is that my trainees, my trainees, the trainees that I work with, um, continue to say to me, "I see missing, I see chest rise." Now I'm going to look at the capnograph, and the danger is that if we use unreliable tests, and they say, "I see missing," so I think the tube's in the right place. I see, um, I see the chest rise. I think the tube's in the right place. I see the well, what's going on with the capnograph. There must be something wrong with the capnograph. It puts them in the wrong frame of mind. So we're presenting the data. And within that, the esophageal detector play is a role. But we'll come now perhaps to the results, I imagine. Yeah. So I think what's what's really important is, is the results. And as, and as you said, and it's going back to again being capnography being 
the gold the gold standard um so is that is that your main message from this that whatever else you do capnography is still is still the, it is the gold standard and we almost shouldn't be biasing ourselves by using these very soft signs because that's what essentially this paper is saying is that we are verbalizing and talking about soft signs they're not concrete and this is biasing our opinion when we then look at the capnograph exactly I, i'd just like to echo echo tim's view here we're we're biasing ourselves in the sense of just cognitively priming ourselves for for saying yes we see misting now saying that misting the absence of misting can be helpful so so if you don't see misting that can lead you to suspect uh, that the tube is very likely to be in the esophagus, whereas the presence of misting is untelling entirely. Uh, so we, we just should avoid that sort of sequence or, or you know, that 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 spiel of chest rise misting capno, uh, and, and it should probably go out of our our collective vocabulary. Saying that as someone who has been trained to to say this, I, I've since stopped. So, this so can I can I jump in? I just want to I just want to make sure that we do emphasize the results. So you obviously need to read the paper to to, to get the results. But but for misting, um, as Susanna said, we have a false positive rate of uh, almost seventy percent. So um, uh, it is if you if you so seventy percent of the time that the tube is in the is in the esophagus, there will be misting. Yeah. So when you see misting, it tells you nothing, yeah. effectively. And then if we look at the, 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 the likelihood ratios, the positive likelihood ratio, then the positive likelihood ratio is 1.5. So that means that um, if you have, um, if the test indicates the tubes in the trachea, it's only 1.5 times more likely to be in the trachea than the esophagus. And the negative ratio, the, ne the negative ratio is low. So if you get no misting, it's highly likely that it is in the, that it, that, that, that it is in the esophagus. Um, so the, the negative ratio, the, 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 the negative um, uh, uh, likelihood ratio is 0 0.02. So if you get, as Jan says, if you if you get no misting, you can go on fifty, you know, on fifty, it's fifty-fold more likely to be in the esophagus than it is in the trachea at this point. So it's quite useful for diagnosing the absence of missing. is quite useful for diagnosing esophageal intubation, but it's useless for ruling it out. And so this is what the guidelines say, and this is what the data says. And if you go through lung auscultation, whether it's uh, just listening to the chest or whether it's five-point auscultation, which I guess is here, here, and stomach, um, then those are better, but they're, but, they're, but, they're, but they're still pretty unreliable. So um, for lung hospitalization, public hospitalization, they've got positive likelihood ratios of about seven to nine. Um, but they've also got, so that means that if they're positive, you're likely to be, you're likely to be okay, but it's not reliable. But they have got false positive rates of about 0.15. So that means one in six times, um, uh, it will be wrong. So we'll miss esophageal intubation one in six times of the times that esophageal intubation occurs. And, and it's also worth putting, I think, putting these, these results in context because um, these are studies which are set up uh, specifically to look at this. So they're set up, they'll be done by people who are experienced, uh, by and large. Uh, they'll be done in ideal circumstances. They'll be done in a laboratory or quiet 
um, uh, or, or, or quiet uh, clinical setting where people can hear, where people can see, where there's no pressure. In the clinical circumstances where the capnograph is flat and you're trying to work out what's going on, and uh, the ODP has just pressed the alarm bell and 20 people have just arrived in your theatre or anaesthetic room, then your ability to listen to the lungs is going to be significantly um, uh, uh, compromised compared to these studies. So I think these probably uh, suggest, and then there's that, there's that confirmation bias. I really want the tube to be in the right place. I listen to those. I'm sure I can hear something. Um, we've all seen that. So I think these, these re represent the, 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 the combination of the false positive rates and the likelihood ratios suggest that these, that these um, tests are not uh, discriminating enough. They're not reliable enough for us to rule out esophageal intubation, and we should be using capnography, and we should then be following the guidelines. If capnography says, don't think this is in the right place, we follow the guidelines, and that doesn't mean going back to listening to the chest. Okay. Maybe maybe just to add to, to, to what Tim said as well, situational complexity in, in the context of, uh, of an unrecognized esophageal intubation just increases with time as well. And we have to consider that setting is quite important. So, so we're we're talking about the theater setting in a very controlled environment. And you could argue that an elective case in in uh, in the theater setting is is actually pretty much controlled compared to, for example, pre-hospital intubations, where um, where the base rate of uh, undetected esophageal intubation or esophageal intubation that that fortunately does get detected is much 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 higher because of because of the circumstances that those intubators work in, or you might have a different skill mix as well, which, which has been changing over the years too. Um, interestingly, the lung auscultation studies, uh, a large number of them are actually done in the pre-hospital environment. So before the patients even come to hospital. Uh, so, so that's quite telling. Um, and, and Tim will be able to say more about the anatomy of, a, of an un, unrecognized esophageal intubation, but but there's this sort of almost like vicious cycle that, that takes place mm -hmm. where where it will ultimately lead to a cardiac arrest if if not recognized, and then complexity just increases exponentially with with more people coming into the mix as well, uh, and and it just clouds collective judgment. And at that point, we just need to go back to basics: use capnography. Yeah. I think I think that's an important point that you've you've raised because when we talk about we talk statistics and we talk about tests, a lot of this is done in a very calm environment. And essentially, when you've got an unrecognised esophageal intubation, you've got what two or three minutes before serious harm is happening to your patient, and that's assuming you had good oxygenation. That's assuming that you were able to oxygenate while you were waiting for your muscle relaxant to work. So the clock is ticking. So something with a, a high false positive rate is worrying in that situation because you do not have the time to do anything else. You have, you have to act. You don't have a lot of time. So relying on something that, that does have these, these high false positive rates, I think is, is, is just, is, is no, is no good. But so, however, whenever you present a large, you know, a, a body of evidence like this to a group of anaesthetists, because we've all got huge amounts of experience, we've all intubated a lot of people, Someone will always say but. So I want to talk about the anesthetic but. So there are always going to be special circumstances in which people are saying, but, but you can't use, you can't use capnography, you can't use it in this situation. So, I mean, the common things are, again, there's high pressure scenarios. It's, you know, the cardiac arrest situations, low cardiac output. So things like bronchospasm, people, oh, but you can't use it. 
Can we can we talk about those? And, and I think this paper does bring some clarity to those situations as well as along with the Puma guidelines. Um, so I think so. If we're looking at the big picture, I think so. So one of the questions is: Is, is are we saying clinical examination is rubbish? It's of, of no value. Yeah. No, we're saying the clinical examination. We're saying exactly what it says in the Puma guidelines, which is clinical examination is of is is unreliable in ruling out esophageal intubation. And in terms of most unreliable, completely unreliable is misting. Just don't use it. Forget about it. Um, chest auscultation um, is, is, is not bad, but it ain't really good. Um, and all the tests, misting, uh, chest auscultation, five-point auscultation, um, are better at identifying esophageal intubation so when you can't hear any sounds or you don't have any misting, they're a useful test perhaps for identifying soft intubation, but they're not sufficiently reliable because of that high false positive rate and a relatively low um, positive likelihood ratio. So they're not reliable enough. We need something that's bang on when we want to rule out soft intubation. So the guidelines say, if you've got a dodgy capnograph and you and uh, you're uncertain, you just take the tube out. You don't go back to listen to the chest. You don't go back to seeing whether you got missing. You take the tube out and go to a place of safety, ventilate with a mask or supraglottic airway, and and then work out where you are. So get to that place of safety. Um, in terms of bronchospasm, um, I think the frequency of of, of bronchospasm uh, causing uh, an absolutely flat capnograph is pretty rare. Um, and I say that in the light of uh, NAP7, amongst other things. Um, uh, I don't think it happens never. But if you've got no CO2 coming out when you're squeezing the bag um, eat, uh, and you think it's bronchospasm, then you're not ventilating the alveoli. If you have no CO2 coming out, the alveoli are not being ventilated. So the tube might as well come out because it may be esophageal intubation. And certainly, including in NAP7, there were, there were more cases of esophageal, undetected esophageal intubation, I'm afraid. And um, there's a bit, one of the elements of the guidelines which falls onto this is the, is the, is the element of humility in airway management, um, being prepared to be wrong, saying, look, I think I've intubated this patient but the capnograph's dodgy. It could be absolute bronchospasm, but I don't want to miss an esophageal intubation, so I'm taking the tube out and work out where we are. If you can't, if you still can't ventilate the patient, you probably haven't lost a great deal, but you may have saved the day simply by extubating the patient at that time. And it may even improve bronchospasm if it was due to bronchospasm. Yeah. No, thank, thank you. I think that's, it's, it's very important points to, to clarify because... I think we've we've got ourselves in a situation where it's it's going back to what Jan said earlier. We you know we put the tube in, you know, the, the ODP or the anesthetic assistant says, oh, that felt good. You then think, oh, I've got breast, you know, I've got misting, I've got chest rise, and then you and then you look at your capnography trace. And that that's kind of been the way that I've been taught. So to do this is this big shift in in culture, really, um, and actually recognizing that that you know, what, what we have been doing for a while is, is, is prone to error. Um, and most of the time, the vast majority of the time, we are fine. But this is, this is not something, you know, this is something that could happen to any of us. So, Susanna, Susanna perhaps my last comment, I'd like to, to um, 
say where I think we should move to, and it's it's slightly outside okay. the, the, the limit of this paper, but it's within the the um, Puma guidelines. Um, so I think we should move away from that. ODP says it feels okay. I can see misting. I can see chest rise. Now let's look at the camera graph. And we should be moving towards what is still a two-person check, but that is with video laryngoscopy, uh, the anaesthetist saying, I've seen the tube go through the cords, the ODP independently confirming that, not saying I agree, but making their own assessment, which requires some teaching. And then both of them independently uh, saying what they think about the capnograph. I can see sustained exhaled carbon dioxide. I can also see sustained exhaled carbon dioxide. We've been doing some work on that in Bath, and I think that is, uh, and and um, at Guy's, uh, and I think that really is a place we need to get to, and I think that will be um, very helpful. In terms of the paper, it's available today via the anaesthesia website. It is free access for all. This is important information, and we hope that everyone watching this goes on to read the paper in full. Thank you very much, um, Tim and Jan, for your Thank time. You. Thank you. Goodbye. The Anesthesia Podcast.